Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're happy to welcome Maria, founding managing partner of Beacon, a London-based fund that invests with a laser-sharp focus in enterprise tech venture across Europe. Maria is an entrepreneur in residence at INSEED Business School and serves on the Committee of Chairs in Emerging Technologies, as well as the Enterprise Hub of the Royal Academy of Engineering. She is also angel investing and on the board of a number of fast-growing companies. This Greek engineer used to fence the foil, so watch out for her repost. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Maria, welcome to the European VC podcast. How are you today? Very well. Nice to be here. I always start the episodes the same way and I always like to ask a similar question. And that question is, how did Beacon Capital come to be and, and how did you end up running Beacon Capital's um, fund? It was, I guess, an accident. I'm Greek. I'm an engineer. I was supposed to go in engineering. Somehow I got sidetracked to the commercial side of things. 10, 12 years ago, I started investing and then it became a full-time job as an angel. And that was the genesis of, or gave genesis to Beacon. I'm the founder, but as I say, I'm accidental founder. Only this year I started realizing, oh, you are actually like an entrepreneur. You're building a fund and you're building a business, you're building a team. Think girl before you act, so to speak. I also would want to start off, because there's, there's actually a cool topic that we're going to talk with you, that we've been uh, talking a bit about it on social media and it's been getting some traction. So I'm, I'm sure people are interested. But before we go there, give <laughs> us like the quick one to two minute rundown of what is Beacon's thesis and strategy so everyone kind of knows what you guys are doing. Beacon is a London-based VC with a European mandate to invest in enterprise tech. What makes us quite different to the rest of the funds out there is that we have what we call a strategy that accelerates the J curve. That's the, the sort of the cash flow curve for the LPs. And the way we do this is through a sort of founder-centric investment strategy. We are here to serve the interest of founders. And I know many VCs say that, and we're all trying. The way we're doing it is twofold. We go where there are capital gaps. Let me double click here. There are two areas where founders are starved of capital. The pre-series A, especially in enterprise cap, in enterprise tech. And then when the time comes for them to take some money off the table, and that's what we call founder liquidity typically pre-series B. So what we do is we invest in primary investments at pre-series A, revenues of about 1 million ARR, always enterprise tech. And we also do secondaries, but directly with a founder, not with other investors, to give the founder liquidity at pre-series B, typically between 5 and 10 million ARR. 
uh, ventures. Let's deep dive a bit into that strategy because I find that interesting. And particularly, let's deep dive on the fact that you are, as you said, right, you're doing it only founder secondary. So you're not like really interested in like a, an early investor, an early angel that wants to get some liquidity. That's not really what you guys are doing. Why did you think of that? Or why do you think like that? And you know, let me be a bit provocative there. I think it's always easy to say, yeah, because we're founder centric. But let me then ask you in a different way, which is from the LP perspective, right? Okay, you're absolutely right. This founder centric is almost the word that has been used a lot. And even the founders must be getting a bit tired. Everyone is trying to be their best friend. We have an ulterior motive here. And let me explain why. When the founder gets to the point where the business is generating five, six, seven million in ARR, typically he or she would have starved himself or herself for quite a few years. I can bet my bottom dollar that the CRO and the head of sales will be remunerated at 2x the salary that the founder is taking. And at that point, also, the founder is likely to start thinking about family, buying the first house. The first time they will be starting thinking about, do I need to actually put some eggs in a different basket? And guess what? The European system, the, the ecosystem, is starving them from the opportunity. For many reasons, we can come back to that. But the problem of starving them from any liquidity at this stage is that they start now thinking short term. 300 million exit is good enough. I own 50% of the business. This is a life-changing experience. The side effect of this, we are not having as many 1 billion plus exits. So while I'm serving the interests of the founders, at the same time, I'm serving the interests of my LPs, but also of the rest of the ecosystem. You give them enough capital, not much, not to go for the Ferrari, not yet anyway, but enough capital to buy the first house, to get the kids to school, to diversify a little bit, and guess what you're getting in return? Loyalty to the 1 billion plus exit. They have no reason to go earlier. That is very much how the ecosystem has been for a long, long time. But we're seeing more and more funds not acting like that anymore because, you know, it used to be don't help the founders (laughs) get money off the table. But we're seeing more and more funds being open to that in Europe. At least that's what we're hearing. Is that also what you're experiencing, that, you know, there are actually buyers for the shares more often now? I'm glad you asked this question. Here is what is happening. The most sophisticated funds out there, they are taking care of their founders and they typically do it during a round. So there is a financing round that will give a little bit of liquidity. But for that, you need two things. One, sophistication. Two, a large enough fund to give you the opportunity to do so. And third... Thirdly, I should say, you need not to have taken money from someone like the British Business Bank. And that's not a criticism of the BBB. It is just a fact. They do not allow secondary transactions. The EIF is changing their position, we understand, and they allow it, but with some restrictions, definitely not off-cycle. Here is what we are saying. There are funds that they are doing it, but most of the funds do not, and very few do it off-cycle. That's where we are coming in. The founders' needs do not have cycles. If I need to buy a property because I have a third child now that I cannot live in a flat, it doesn't quite synchronize with when my Series B will be. And that's what we are trying to say. Guys, you don't have to synchronize anything. We are here. 
and we're going for top assets. Again, another area where we may want to deep dive um, later on. Secondaries off-cycle quite often are being linked to distressed situations, big discounts. That's not what we stand for. That's not what we're here to serve. We are serving the needs of the high-performing founders out there. I think you asked the question and I half answered it. There is another driver in play here. The U.S. funds have baked in liquidity from Series A onwards for a long time. You are a founder of five years something, people will think of you in rounds. In Europe, we are very, very uncertain around this subject. They'll go back and say, yes, there are a few funds, but they are the minority rather than the other way around. It's incredibly interesting. How do you then think about your portfolio construction around all of this? Because, you know, uh, one founder needs a house for 300K, another founder needs a house for a million. How does that match what you need? We don't stipulate what house they want to buy. They can buy whatever they want. We're not in the real estate business. But it is true that in London, if you have a family, 300,000 will not take you that far at all. Here is how we are thinking we would like to get a specific percentage. So we have an equity holding target and we work backwards from there. Typically for the secondaries, we would like to own 2% of the business, which again translates to an enterprise value of around 100 million. Now, this is our target. Very rarely we sort of absolutely go on target. It will be plus minus a little bit around these numbers, however. So typically, we would aim to give the founder liquidity for about $2 million. Is that typically, Maria, just from one individual? Or is it more typical that it's from a group of founders? And, and how do you go about all of this process? I think many of our listeners are GPs themselves, right? They're thinking about how do we go about this topic. For some of them, it matches their strategy. I'm curious to dive into the details there. It is true that doing a secondary is not a straightforward transaction. And that's the other thing. People need to learn how to do it. There are three aspects, three big stakeholders in this process. It is the founder, it is the board and typically the existing investors, and then it's it's us, the beacon. All three need to come to an agreement that they want to make this transaction. And the intelligent thing here is to try and make everyone see it as a win-win. There is such a thing. So incumbent VC needs to see it as a, mm, it's as the interest of the founder. I don't want to give any more liquidity or I don't have the ability to give liquidity. That keeps my founder happy. Yes, I will approve the transaction because remember, there is the right of first refusal in the documents. No one can sell shares, not even the founders, without the approval of typically the shareholders often, but also the board and the lead investor. So that is taking care of the stakeholders. Your question about is it one or multiple people? Typically, we will talk with a CEO founder. If he or she says, I have two co-founders and they need it a lot more, we can change the percentages. However, we are always conversing with the founder, CEO, and this is important for us for two reasons. We need to make sure we solve the problem we are set out to solve, and this is long-term vision. I want them to think horizon two, horizon three, without a concern of financial burden. And number two, we want the endorsement of the founder, CEO, because then we can do the due diligence we 
want to do. And again, this speaks to that sort of peculiarity of Beacon. And we have a, a blog post actually on the reasons why even last year, the time when everyone was deploying at hectic speeds and due diligence was condensed down to nothing, we were saying, no, we do due diligence exactly as we wanted to, but that's where you need the founder to give you access to the CPO, to the CTO, to the COO, to have quick, surgical, deep due diligence so that you know what you are comfortable with the risks you will be taking. Maria, I'm uh, very curious about, <laughs> this might sound a bit silly because uh, you've been with Beacon for 10 years or so right now, uh, more or less. Well, I started it as a, a syndicate of angels and then I launched the fund last year. We, yeah. cl- we had the first closing last year. What I'm curious is how do you go from angel, which typically are doing earlier stage, simpler deals, to setting up this different kind of monster, because it is a completely different kind of monster, doing the secondary deals, which, as you have said, and many have said before in this show, are quite complex deals. How do you go from one to the other? And I'm asking again, as Andrea said, many of our listeners might be in the early stages of their angel track or of kind of shifting from angel to VC. So that is super interesting and insightful. One can give an arrogant answer and say, well, all you need is ability to think, (laughs) but that's not the case. It did take me 10 years. So one cannot say that I'm super smart here. 10 years angel investing, full time. I'm a typical engineer. I need to build the bloody bridge before I'm able to sell it to anyone. So 10 years angel investing, five of them, typically I would lead the transaction. So you get to syndicate, you get to receive punches, you get to negotiate with some very tough, very tough, I underline this, um, and talented CEOs and founders. So you cut your teeth in something like that. And then the secondary is like, okay, it's just a technicality. It's nothing that much difficult. So just to be more serious about how you make the transition from angel. I've done angel investing a little bit, starting actually just after the dot-com. It shows my age now. After the dot-com, because the valuations had collapsed, and I felt, how right, I can play around to see how this works. And about 10 years ago, I started realizing, God, I'm not too bad at it, but I want to do it in my own way. And I had this almost unreasonable conviction in European enterprise tech, which very few people were focusing on back then, and even fewer investors and that's how I formed a syndicate around me and we started making investments. Soon I became almost like the de facto leader. I didn't ask for it. I just became the person who was most interested in leading the transactions. So you learn, first of all, to make investments, to select, originate, and then you learn to structure and negotiate. Then you learn to go on the board and to be the investor director representing the interests of your syndicate. That's a a whole new sort of game. And it was only after all this, I was, I suppose, feeling quite ready. Come on, how much more difficult can a fund be? The answer is, it's not more more difficult, but it's something more complicated with regulations, structures, and all these things. Just to wrap things, because you asked me, we moved to the seconders, which is a, a more complicated game. There are technical challenges. Still, you are selecting assets, you are originating relationships and opportunities, and you are pricing risk. The slight difference is the structure and the process will be different because you have stakeholders, 
And the only other sort of difference is as an angel, I was doing pre-series A, post-seed, always pre-series A, and that I can do it with my eyes closed. Now with the secondaries, you are doing bigger beasts. So what you need to fine tune is how you do the due diligence so that you assess the risk you are taking on. This was the net new, if you want. But again, we were super prepared when we set up the fund. We had already identified the assets. So we had sort of prepared ourselves for this. Maria, there's one thing that I would maybe just like to clarify because we didn't do that in the beginning. You're doing secondaries and then you're doing primaries. How's the split between the two in terms of portfolio construction? It is roughly 50-50 in terms of capital allocation. But you can imagine that because we you put two million per transaction in the secondary versus half to one million for primary, you can imagine that in terms of companies will not be 50-50. And follow-on rounds? How does that kind of factor in? That's a good question. For our pre-series A, we reserve capital for follow-on. We also reserve for the secondaries because we have full preemption rights. This is part and parcel of, of our strategy to be able to have full rights as a secondary investor. The way we think about the follow-ons is because we have such a specific target return or, or, or investors have, I'm sure. But because we have that, we are always assessing the follow-ons in terms of upside potential. And if they hit the thresholds, then we don't care if it is from the primary or the secondary pool. All we care is, can we see the multiple that we want? And then we deploy the capital. And it did follow on in a secondary investment for that very reason. And I'm sure we will do a lot more of that. So we are agnostic as to where we are following on so long as we hit the threshold we want on the return. <laughs> this is a bit of a curiosity and maybe a difficult question to answer. But even though you say that you don't want to be the, the guys coming in and taking big discounts or requiring big discounts to do a secondary off cycle, mm -hmm. there is typically still a discount, I'm sure. How do you think about whether you want to participate in the actual round or whether you want to say, well, why not wait a year and then <laughs> jump in on the secondary? <laughs> okay. First of all, I will disagree here. Um, we don't always yeah. get discounts. Yeah, if you are at the top yeah. of the stack, then you have really very little argument for a discount. Yes, people assign a premium to the fact that you're giving them liquidity for something that it's not a liquid asset. But when you value the underlying asset, and this asset has two or three or four terms it's on the table, the unit economics are top decile, if not top 5%, when they have been growing at an astonishing rate, even in the current climate, to go in and say, I want a discount, I'm not sure that's us. So let me be very clear here. No, there are circumstances where we're not getting a discount because we are at the top of the stack. Now, the question is more when you're getting at the bottom of the stack, you're getting founder shares and they're not converting, what are you doing then? Then it is a matter of do you want to be there and perhaps enjoy a small discount? Is that what you're after? Will you have the opportunity to go in later or is now the time that the founder needs the liquidity? So I'm not sure that there is, in our mind at least, there is no game to be played here. It's a matter of when do we have the opportunity to go in an asset we want 
and what is the valuation of this asset at the point we are going in rather than playing the discount. Discount seriously is, I would say, third, fourth yeah. consideration, if any consideration uh, at all. That's interesting and it's an important note to remember, I think, for most, because you very quickly think about discounts when you think about this market. I think that's very much what we are trying to change in this industry. Secondaries are not discounts. Yes, there are some secondaries that are about distressed assets. There is no liquidity. And absolutely, there are funds that they do that day in, day out. And I'm pretty sure they serve a purpose. That's not us. We are founder liquidity. And discount has nothing yeah. to do with founder liquidity. When you do a secondary trade with founder shares, I guess that you also take over the founder shares rights and so on. Meaning when you're up in Series B, you typically have some <laughs> preferential shares that are coming out in the rounds. And then how do you think about that whole stack? Because I'm, I imagine that it can be quite complex for you to think through. It is. There are a couple of playbooks there, if you want. There are circumstances where our shares will be converted to the top of the stack and therefore have, we will be at the top of the stack in, the, in terms of liquidation preference. That's straightforward. And that's where I think discussions around discounts are yeah. unwarranted. You have situations where you will stay at the bottom of the stack and then you're looking how big is versus where the companies, the revenue they have achieved, what will be their future cash flow needs and is it likely that these future needs will come with punitive liquidation preference? This is all part and parcel of how you value the assets. You take a view on, on this. And then you decide whether you want to stay at the bottom because you feel comfortable, confident, the company will not raise with punitive liquidation preferences and you are very comfortable that they are increasing the equity value faster than they will be increasing the liquidation preference stack. There are other situations where the stack might be too big. We haven't been in one. Typically, the assets we backed have either very flat structures. Can you believe that? A company with 40 plus million revenue and they have a flat structure. So our shares are exactly the same as the shares of multi-billion funds or they have a very thin liquidation preference stack. So I cannot speak of situations where there is something extraordinary there and makes us feel uncomfortable because typically I think we would not participate in the situations. Again, we're going for a very different type of assets. Yeah. I had... Uh three topics that I wanted to still talk with Marie about, but we got a bit excited and we're running out of time. And also for people listening in, this is one of the few episodes where I guest is standing up. So that's, if you, if you feel that <laughs> Maria is truly engaged, she is. <laughs> yeah. So with that note. I think better when I stand up, it's just my usual thing. Sorry about that. That's how I do my phone calls, walking around. People think I'm crazy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. With that said, Maria, it's time for the quick fire round. So the quick fire round is when we ask you a couple of quick answer questions. That means 30 to 60 second answers each. How do you feel? Are you ready? <laughs> I was born ready. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. So the first question is what areas, technologies or sectors excite you the most that people around you don't really feel that excited about? We still believe people do not understand Europe and do not believe in European enterprise tech. We are doubling down on that and we are doubling down trying to convince 
the global investors, the global capital allocators, that while the European GDP has been growing at 1.5% average the past 10 years, spend, enterprise software spend, has been growing at twice that. So this is the area to invest. And I will state that people believe that uh, the ecosystem is growing here. We are nowhere near to what we should be. So enterprise tech, Europe. Yeah, we love that. We fully support uh, the Europe argument and we love all, all verticals alike, enterprise tech being one of them. Second question, what are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising? There has never been a bigger opportunity. What we need to do is articulate our thesis in a way that positions us uniquely against everyone else who is fundraising at the same time. I know this sounds wishy-washy, but actually it is about defining your white space. It is about demonstrating the product market fit. It is about exactly what we are saying to our portfolio companies to do. We need to do exactly the same. The system is big, it's getting bigger, it's getting healthier, but there are gaps, there are opportunities, and founders out there seeking capital to build global leaders. So persist at all costs. I don't care if you get 10 no's. It's the one yes that will make the difference. Third and final question. What is the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned in venture, Maria? When everyone goes in one direction and you feel the, an incredible pressure to do the same thing, stop and think. Probably you're doing the wrong thing. Look exactly the opposite direction. <laughs> You made me remind Michael Jackson's post yesterday or whatever. It was a bunch of, of uh, actors pretending to be sheep. And it was kind of a, a pun about VCs. Uh, and then he compared it to the Bloodhound Gang Bad Touch video clip. And that took me back <laughs> to 99, right? When I, was a, when I was a kid singing that song. So you just brought that back in my memory. Thank you for that. Uh, that was a great song. <laughs> uh, it is. It is. If we didn't have the sort of turbo charging the European VC, we would say the sort of don't think like the herd. You really need to look the other direction because VC is a systemically is a cyclical business. Success brings more capital allocation, which brings higher prices, which brings the collapse, which then starts again. It's just a cyclical business. It's like the semiconductor industry. Because there are such booms and busts in the supply and the demand, the business is cyclical. And we're seeing what happened now with the semiconductor industry. Everyone is building capacity. What's going to happen in 20, 30 years? Prices will collapse and we'll go back to where we were before. It's just cyclical. And don't release this one. That's only for us. Nah, of course we'll release that one. Um, <laughs> Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. It was super fun. I love this topic. And, uh, you know, we didn't talk about GP shares and GP commit and all that. That's also a topic we've started talking a bit more about because secondaries in our world is also quite important. So, yeah, Maria, thanks so much for joining us. Guys, you made it so much fun. Thank you so much. That was my first podcast. On the basis of that, probably you will see me in myriad podcasts from now on. <laughs> Thank you so much. This will be the interview where people say that this is where Maria was spotted. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so long as they don't delete it and put the thumbs down, I will be happy, mate. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. 
If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Want to be on top of who the best up and coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.